topic tonight is really very topical for us as a community. It's because free speech and censorship is alive and well as a debating point in the Australian society today. And I'm not aiming tonight to expound for you Genesis 1 or, or 2 Timothy 4. As I said, the, the website, that uh, you can get my Genesis series down and listen to them, and I'd encourage you to it. Every now and then I listen to one myself, and I think, gee, I used to know a lot. Um, it's quite disarming, really, uh, to find these things. But what I'm aiming to do is to take some of the key texts uh, to look at the issue of censorship itself. Now let's start though with Genesis 1 because the repeated chorus of Genesis 1, by the way there's an outline for uh, this talk, you make it easier for you to follow, if you follow the little sheet on the back of the parish council minutes which you're not supposed to read during the gathering. But the censorship outline is there. The first thing you see is, and God said. Our God is a speaking God. He speaks And it occurs nine times in that Genesis 1 reading we just heard, this repeated chorus, and God said. We hear that God manufactured the universe. He created firstly without form and void, it was empty, and then in this breathtaking series of commandments, we read, and God said, let there be, and there was. We're not told how the world was created, by God's command, just that it was created by God's commands. He spoke and it happened, which tells us that God's word expresses his intentions and is powerfully effective in accordance with God's purposes. God is so powerful that he doesn't have to do anything other than speak and it happens. But that means God's word is so powerful that once spoken, it happens. This powerful word of God is addressed then to man in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 we read, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you shall surely die. And we did die that that, that day, friends, when we ate that tree. We did die like cut flowers, You know, you cut the flower, you put it in the vase and it opens up and blooms and you think it shows you life but actually it's dead. It was dead the moment you snipped it. It looks alive, it looks greater a day or two after you've cut it. But hang around, it's dead. The leaves will fall, the petals will fall and the water will stench because you and I, we are dead like cut flowers. Oh, we bloom and flourish till we're 17, 18, then it's a long, slow, downhill glide from there. (laughs) Here's the Lord's command, his promises, and warns the man whom he created in his image, whom he appointed as the gardener in the garden. He could eat of anything that was there except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't an apple and it wasn't sex. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because in eating that fruit, Man was going to become the determiner of what is good and evil. He was going to make up the rules for what is good and evil. He, would be, he was created like God, but he wanted to, re, to actually replace God. What is astonishing is that the powerful creative word of God is addressed to us. He relates to us by speech. 
now throughout the scripture, this creative power of God's word is taught. So in the Old Testament, Psalm 33, we read, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. And in the New Testament, in John 1, that famous passage, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Not only the creative power of the Word of God, but also the sustaining power of the Word of God, giving life and maintaining it. So, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 8, Man doesn't live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 1, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. God's word is very powerful. It will achieve its purpose. Famous passage in Isaiah 55 which goes, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return, but there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. When God speaks, it happens. For God's word is almighty powerful. And this is how God relates to us, by this enormously, astonishingly, extraordinarily powerful word. By his powerful word, he talks to his people, by his prophets in particular. Some speak, others write, but it is God's word that they're bringing to us. Thus says the Lord, is what the prophets introduce their comments with. But it's just not the the Lord's words that are powerful. Words themselves are powerful. Words have these two dimensions about them, truth and power. Your words, my words, all words have these dimensions of truth and power. The power is not just in the truth, but in the words themselves. God's words are much more powerful than ours because God is much more powerful than us, but our words have power, we who are created in his image. Human words have power. The false prophet's words have power. The false witness has power in his words, for they can do incredible damage to others. The human tongue, says James, is a, it's devastatingly powerful. Like a spark can set off devastating fires. Like a, a rudder, small as it may be, can change the direction in which a huge ship travels. Like the bit in the horse's mouth can control the great animal. So powerful are the little things in our mouth, the tongue that speaks. And the devil's power, why, his power is found in words. For he murders by his lies that we are seduced into believing. We give him his power, for the devil has no power in himself. We give him his power by believing his lies. But the power he has over us is in the lies that he tells us. 
for words are very powerful. Indeed, so powerful are the words that in the 20th century, people dispensed with truth, perfecting propaganda and analysing all words purely in terms of power. For those of you who are old enough to be raised in an enlightenment world, truth is what mattered. For those of you young enough to be raised in the postmodern world, power is all that matters. For those of us who are Christians, truth and power are united in the word of God. But the whole way now, the new way of understanding the world, the new way that is now taught in every English class across our Department of Education, the new way that's taught throughout the philosophy departments and the English departments of our universities and the histories and all the humanities now, is the way of understanding words whereby their meaning is irrelevant, only the power they exercise matters. Our concern is the persuasive power of the speaker, not the meaning of the speech, let alone the truth of the speech. All speech is to be deconstructed as we discuss the power of the speaker is trying to exercise us rather than listen to what he means or evaluate what he, uh, whether he speaks the truth. This, of course, is what Mr Trump is about, if you haven't understood it. And, of course, what is so funny for those of us who are outside of the whole experience because the media and the journalists have been telling us for years that words don't mean anything, it's all just power being exercised and then one man, Mr Trump, got up and took them seriously and so he doesn't care what he says because he's not interested in truth, he's interested in power and now they're upset because he's doing what what they told him to do. We live in this post-truth society because we're only interested in the effects of communication. I will tell you anything to get you to do what I want you to do because truth doesn't matter, is the Trump line. Please do not misunderstand me. I'm not telling you whether I'll vote for him or against him. The choice between Mr Trump and Mrs Clinton was a choice between the devil and the deep blue sea. It really was. The country that can produce 350 million people but can only come up with those two candidates has a serious problem. (laughs) We should talk. (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) The Bible records for us people responding to the word of God. Some responses are naturally enough positive, some are naturally enough negative. So Psalm 119 gives us the positive response. It's an alphabet psalm, Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. It goes for 176 verses because every eight verses they start with the next letter of the alphabet, which has only got 22 letters in Hebrew. Uh, Yes, 22 times 8 is 176. And what you notice as you read all 176 verses is nearly every one of them, I think every one, but I'll say nearly just in case you find one that's not there, nearly every verse is about the word of God, about his precepts, his statutes, his commandments, his laws. They're all about the word of God and all of them rejoice in the word of God. The the psalmist is desperately keen to learn and to keep what God says. 
the motto of Scripture Union, Beach Mission texts, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, verse 105. See, the basic positive response to God's word is faith. Not in the sense of superstitious gullibility or some super spiritual irrationality. That's not faith. But in the sense of trust. That's what faith is, trust. Actually, I think we need to get rid of the word faith because our non-Christian friends all think we mean superstition. And no one is justified by superstition. People are just made stupid by superstition. No, no, we're justified by trust. Trust in God. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection for us. We trust God. And so we trust his word, which is true. We're relying upon it, accepting his wisdom, depending upon it. Trust is essential to knowledge. Trust is essential to friends. If you doubt everybody, you have no friends. And if you doubt everything, you know nothing. Descartes did it and wound up with the only thing he could come to. I think, therefore I am which turns out to be wrong. He just didn't doubt seriously enough because actually if you doubt seriously enough, I, I think, therefore, I think. You can't actually go beyond that because you don't know whether I am there at all. You don't know whether I think because there's thinking. He didn't doubt seriously enough, actually, because if you doubt everything, you know nothing. Everybody has to trust. Who do you trust? What do you trust? Looking forward in hope to the promises of God being fulfilled is trusting God, obeying the commandments of God, rejoicing in his good news, trusting God's word. God's people trust God and so the truth of God's word and consequently we experience the power of God's word. What changes us? and changes our society around about us, is God's word, as we put our trust in the truth of his word. But the world's response to God's word is the negative response of rebellion and sinfulness. Come back to Genesis 3 and see how sin entered the world, bringing us to death that God promised and warning and warned the man would happen. Let me read to you the first six verses of Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave also some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Notice the six steps to death that we took. First, cast doubt on what God said. Did God actually say? Secondly, Add to God's word. You, you mustn't even touch it. Thirdly, deny God's word. You won't die. That's not true. 
Fourthly, ascribe false promises, false attitudes to God, false motives to God. God just doesn't want you to become like him. He's trying to, it's a demarcation dispute. He's trying to keep Godness for himself. Fifthly, see by the lie instead of by the truth. When you look at the world, do you look through the Bible glasses or do you see with your eyes what the world is like? See through the lie that the evil one has just said because the woman looked and saw the tree was a delight to the eyes. It was good for food. It was wonderful to make you wise. And sixthly, she shared the lie with her husband, bringing the whole world of mankind down, for it's known as the sin of Adam, not the sin of Eve, for he failed. He listened, he hearkened to his wife. Trusting and obeying his wife, he listened to the human word spoken beside him rather than the divine word spoken above him. And so commences the Bible's description of how dead people try to avoid listening to the truth of God's word. Broadly speaking, in both Old and New Testaments, there are two negative responses. The religious will not listen and the irreligious will censor. So the religious people, church-going people, harden their hearts to God's word, like the people in the wilderness who disobeyed God, or the people who honour God with their lips while their heart is far from him, which is Jesus' judgment on his contemporaries following the idea of Isaiah. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men, he says. Or we'll pretend to keep God's word while constantly minimising its requirements, accommodating it to the culture around about us, looking for loopholes where we can avoid the consequence avoid its strict demands. The whole Sermon on the Mount is about this kind of Pharisaic minimalisation. Or we'll twist the scriptures to our own destruction, as Peter says in 2 Peter 3.16. Or we'll attract false teachers to suit our own selves, as we'll see in that passage in 2 Timothy 4. The internet is full of teachers that you can check out and find one that suits you. It's a wonderful way of not listening, isn't it? You actually find the person who says what you want said and you just keep listening to them. But the irreligious are not so hypocritical. What they do is they just censor God's word. They're not interested in its truth. They just want to stop its power. They just want to silence it and silence its preachers. So in Isaiah's day they said to the seers, do not see and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about this Holy One of Israel. Or in Jeremiah they said, Do not prophesy in the name of Yahweh, in the name of the Lord, or you will die by our hand. And the apostles were told not to preach the gospel. The council in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. 
And they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Still others heard the word of God and despised it. The Athenians, when they heard Paul preach about the resurrection, they mocked at him. They called him earlier in the day a babbler, a person, a bower bird who picks up snippets of information but actually knows nothing and understands nothing. Someone whose whole intellectual understanding of the universe is found just on their iPhone. They know nothing but they can tell you answers quickly. Uh, the Corinthian Greeks, they thought the cross was foolish, while the Jews thought the cross was weak and powerless. Today, our dead world, having given up on the truth, still struggles with the power of words. And so today, Australia is a country of censorship, and increasingly so. There's lots of different ways of censorship that is alive and well here in our society. So, well done patiently sitting there listening to what I'm saying. Take a moment now to do some work, will you? You should be working already. Your brain should be churning now. I want you to churn the brain of the person beside you and quickly just think, just talk with each other. Only for a minute or two, then I'll collect up some ideas from you. Where do you see censorship alive and well in Australia now? All right, that should be enough to get a whole set of answers up for us, shouldn't we? So, same-sex debate over here. Films, schools, in the media. Let me tell you six forms of censorship that is available that's happening right now. First one is there's the formal legal censorship from the government. You see, we don't have absolute freedom of speech in this country. There are laws about defamation, slander and libel, uh, laws against vilification and against offensive language. In fact, it's one of the controversies that's fighting out in the federal government about the Racial Discrimination Act that makes it illegal to offend, insult or humiliate anybody. The Attorney General said uh, that we should have the right to be bigots and people abused him for this as a piece of bigotry. Uh, See, gone is the Enlightenment motto, which was, I don't like what you say, but I'll die for the right, I'll defend to the death your right to say it. That's no longer true. People will not defend your right to say anything. Uh, There's the tension, secondly, between privacy and criminal cover-up. And so we now have set up ICAC in order to bring out into the open the words of powerful people because powerful people keep their words secret. Transparency is something that people in power hate. Then thirdly, there's the censorship of garbage. Now, this one was the common censorship until the 1960 idealists in their foolish idealism got rid of this one. It's still there because there's restrictions about conveying conveying images of pedophilia, but that's about the limits of it now. All garbage is available, pornography is readily available and continually growing, degenerating all communication in its wake as the community becomes increasingly desensitised to its stench. Let me show it to you. This is just slightly off the track, but the important thing happened this last week or two. Hugh Hefner died. He was the founder of Playboy. Uh, he died aged 91. New York Times produced a very powerful piece about him, 
which goes something like this. Heff was the grinning pimp of the sexual revolution, a father of smut addictions and eating disorders, abortions and divorce and syphilis, a pretentious huckster who published updike stories no one read while doing flesh procurements for celebrities, a revolutionary whose revolution chiefly benefited men much like himself. Started Playboy in 1953 with a big picture of Marilyn Monroe on the front of it, etc., and ran pornography at a time when pornography wasn't available in our society. He goes on to say in this article, now that death has taken him, we should examine our own sins, our own sins, not just his, our sins. It says liberals should, that's not liberal party, that's liberal minded people, liberals, not the same thing, Liberals should ask why their crusade for freedom and equality found itself such a captain and what his legacy says about their cause. Conservatives should ask how their crusade for faith and family and community ended up with a conservative party that just elected a playboy as our president. For Mr Trump was in the playboy crowd. He concludes that only prudish Christians, that's a tautology, that only prudish Christians and spoil sport feminists, another tautology, are willing to say that the man was obviously wicked and destructive. It's itself a reminder that the Rot Hugh Hefner spread goes very, very deep. What's to say about our society that we entertain ourselves with garbage? What's it say about our minds? Then there are the other forms of censorship. There are the bullies, the group that will not allow you to speak against them or even about them. For fear you may weaken their power, undermine them or somehow offend them. The homosexual lobby is a clear and easy case to see. They won't allow real discussion of their behaviour, attacking all opposition as homophobia. They were able to censor everybody, it would seem, all the great companies, all individuals. See, Fred Hollows was an Australian of the year, the man who did all the cataract surgeries and raised millions of dollars. Uh, to Fred Hollows, he spoke against homosexuality and within a few weeks he had to back down and apologise because the money turned off for his donations to the eye cataract things. They bullied him into silence. Uh, uh, Mozilla is a fairly large uh, company in America in the internet uh, world. Uh, they appointed a CEO who after a few months had to, be, had to resign because it was found out that five years previously he'd given $1,000, which is chicken feed of course, a $1,000 donation to an anti-gay political referendum. He was forced to resign from his job in Mozilla, which has got nothing to do with his political donations. Or take the abortion lobby, who will not allow photos of a, fetal, of a fetus or an embryo who will not allow that to be shown. And they attack anybody who raises any moral questions about the tens of thousands of abortions each day, each year, rather. In Australia, it's just under 100,000 a year. In China, in India, there have been so many abortions of girls that there is a disproportionate population spread between men and women now. But we're not allowed to talk about it. 
or the Muslim community who won't allow any negative presentation of Muhammad or the Quran to be aired, but threatens with physical violence all opponents. In uh, 2014, in Brandeis University, one of the major great ancient uh, universities of, of America, was offering an honorary doctorate to uh, A.N. Hirsi Ali, a great critic of uh, Islam. But the university was forced to withdraw the offer of the honorary doctorate because she criticised Islam. My dear friends, you cannot know the truth if you will not allow people to speak. You cannot know if you know the truth if you never allow anyone who is an opponent to raise a question about your beliefs. You will remain ignorant of what could be the truth. We must allow people to criticise, to raise objections, to oppose. I get deeply offended as a Christian by what I read in the papers or what I hear on the supposedly my ABC. They offend me regularly and deeply. I give up watching shows like Q&I because... It always is anti-Christian. It is always casting aspersions on the Lord and Saviour who died for me. I am deeply offended by it, but I've got to be willing to listen. For if I say, you must not talk about this subject, how will I know that I know the truth? The Muslims, they never know whether they know the truth because they never allow anybody to say anything that would question what they believe. Then there are the gatekeepers, the fifth one of the God, who consciously or unconsciously don't allow alternative viewpoints to be expressed. Mainstream media is about the journalist club worldview. But alternative worldviews get no airing other than being reported and analysed negatively by the journalist club. They consistently omit positive references to Christianity. They'll attack, ridicule, scorn Christianity, but not Islam because they're afraid of what might happen, or homosexuality or feminism, because most of them are committed to that view of life. It's a great show. I gave up reading the Sydney Morning Herald recently, or a few months back, uh, before the homosexual uh, debate. I, I just finally got sick of it. I was raised of the Sydney Morning Herald. I've read it most of my life. I just couldn't stand it anymore. And so I went across to reading The Australian. Fascinating. Two different worlds. Two completely different Australias, two different societies, two different worldviews. If you only read one, the Australian, you've got no idea what the other group are thinking. If you only read the Herald, you've got no idea what the other group are thinking. They, they report about the same event, but you'd not recognise it's the same event. I went to a demo at Sydney University the other day. They both reported on it. It was two different events in the newspaper. You're not even recognisable if you read the two newspapers. I've gone back to reading the Herald because the Australian doesn't tell me anything about Sydney. And I'm not an Australian, I'm a Sydney sider. So if someone could start a new newspaper, I'd be very interested. But it's not just the media, it's the education system, which is using the curriculum for social engineering, forcing certain ideas to be learnt while omitting other ideas. Then there are, of course, the word twisters who insist that their words being used to describe reality and not anybody else's words. So you're not talking about, talking about mothers and fathers, you've got to talk about parents and childcare. You're not talking about homosexuality, you've got to talk about gays. You, you don't talk about homosexual debate, you talk about ho- gay rights. 
You don't talk about a spouse, a husband or a wife. You talk about a partner, like you've got a business or something, or you're playing tennis together. It's not him and her, it's them. It's not Mrs and Miss. It's, or that stupid one, that really, 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 really stupid one called the common era. There is no common era. It's a nonsense. You've got BCE, before the common era, and CE, the common era, because they don't want to have before Christ and in the year of the Lord. But the crazy part of the common era is the dates are exactly the same as BC and AD. And the Muslims have a different era. And the Buddhists have a different era. Well, they don't have an era because they don't believe in history. But the Jews have a different. See, the Jews date everything from, from, Muhammad, from Moses. The, the Muslims from Muhammad. The Hindus and Buddhists from nobody. Christians from Christ. But suddenly this is the common era. It is a complete and utter anti-Christian nonsense. But yet, in some universities, you get marked down if you use BC and AD. You lose marks. Such is the tyranny of the senses. We Christians, when we were in power, sadly made the same mistakes of using power to censor speech, especially blasphemy laws. For we used the community power, legal imposition, to stop people having their say and to make sure that we had our way. It was always a mistake. But Christian censorship is not wrong. We just applied it wrongly. It should be of ourselves, not of others. It should be more concerned with the truth than with power. We know the power of words, so God commands, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And our speech must have a wholesome character to it. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. But there is a wrong self-censorship too. We shouldn't self-censor the gospel out of our conversation. We shouldn't allow fear of others to silence us about our Lord Jesus Christ. As Peter wrote, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled in your hearts, but nor be troubled, but in your hearts honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. But today we are very often guilty of this wrong self-censorship. Saying what is polite and appropriate in a godless and dead world will mean that we never mention God or Jesus sin or judgment, hell or atonement or repentance or what you call the gospel. See, next Monday when you go back to work or to uni or to tech or wherever you are, what are you going to say about the weekend? You know, Monday they all say, did you have a good weekend? And you say, yeah, I went to a concert. Yeah, I went to the movies. Yes, it was a lovely day at a barbecue. When in fact, what you should be saying is, I went to church and heard a great sermon. I'm not talking about next Monday, I'm talking most Mondays. And I heard a great sermon, all about why I should tell you about God and Jesus. Are you going to say that next Monday? See how self-censorship enters in? We're forgetting that God's word is powerful. We must be like Paul who was not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. 
For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Of course it will get a reaction from your fellow workers, your colleagues, from your neighbours. Of course it will get a reaction. But one of the reactions will be their salvation. The Greek philosopher and debater may think that the word of the cross is foolish and the Jew may think it's weak and powerless, but to those who are being saved by the word of the cross, it's the wisdom of God and it is the very power of God. Speak up, my dear friends. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. For when you speak of Jesus' death for our sins, when you speak of Jesus' resurrection, it's not only your word you're speaking, it's God's word that is in your mouth the very word of God by which he created the whole world, the powerful, life-giving word of God that can bring the hearer to new life is yours to speak. We don't need to worry about the powerfulness of our words. We only need to be concerned about the truthfulness of our words for if it is God's word, it will be powerful to bring life to others. We're to silence false teachers, but the way we silence false teachers is by teaching the truth and exposing errors. Just as Jesus silenced the opponents in Jerusalem, answering each of their objections and then posing some of his objections to them. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. And Peter was silenced by Paul when he rebuked him with the truth. Our task, yours and mine, is to speak the word of life into a world of death. Because it's God's word. It's what the world needs to hear. It's loving your neighbour. It's the message that brings new life to a dead world. Because it is a world of death. It's the word the world doesn't want to hear. But because it's a word of death, It's the message that having rejected will bring them death. Though if they accept, brings them life, eternal life. So, what do you say back at work? What do you say to your neighbours or your friends at school or at uni? What are you going to say next Monday when you see them again? had a great time thinking about the death and resurrection of Jesus. What did you do on your weekend? It occurred to me we're all going to die and yet, you know, Jesus brings new life. Have you ever thought about that? Because I was talking about it with a friend at church. You should come to our church. We talk about serious things. Our New Testament reading tonight delivered the charge that Paul gave his protege Timothy All scripture, he says, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. And then he goes on to say, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. The scriptures are God's profitable word to us. They're all the equipment we need for God's, as God's leaders to teach and reprove and correct and train. And so we're to proclaim this word. And notice how verse 2 it says, in season, out of season, when convenient to us or not convenient to us. 
for the charge that he gives to Timothy is in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who's going to judge the living and the dead. Proclaim the word. And notice the other reason he gives for Timothy for doing this. Because he says, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. My brothers and sisters, your friends, your neighbours, the people that you work with, the people you study with, the people you kick footballs with, if the only thing they're listening to is the Sydney Morning Herald, is the Australian, is the ABC, they will never hear the word that could save them. It is you who are to speak the word. For this is our world, friends, this is our age, this is our world of death, the world where people guiltily believe any crazy idea that's going and cynically reject the word of God that they've never listened to. We mustn't use force to persuade people, but we must persuade people by the prayerful proclamation of the truth. The first place to go to is prayer. The second is to stop self-censorship, but to speak the truth, renounce error, do it politely, with respect, but don't worry about maintaining relationships at the cost of truth, for that's the world's way of censoring God's word. We must speak up. And for those amongst us this night for whom you can't speak up the word of God because it's not yet in your heart to speak in your mouth, the first place to start is listening to the great word of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection for you. And well done, you've come to a place where I believe you'll hear it spoken regularly. Come back, listen more, come again, even this tomorrow morning to hear it with the children's because if you really don't know it, hearing a children's talk is the best way of getting it often. But ask questions, find out more. Do not censor the truth. You've done well, you've come already. Keep coming. And those of us who know the word, keep speaking it in season, out of season convenient or inconvenient. Do not fear for you are speaking the truth that is powerful. Helen and I will be around for a little while so if you want to ask questions then but I think we most likely need to pray and move to our songs. I'm looking at the clock. I'm looking at you. You're nodding. That's what we're doing. Good. Let me lead you in prayer. And the musos no doubt will come up while I'm doing that and we'll get ready to sing the next song. Is that right? Good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word by which you created the universe. We thank you for all the good things that you have done for us, but we thank you especially for your word who became flesh and lived amongst us, full of grace and truth. We thank you for the Lord Jesus that he came to live and to die for us and to rise again and that he has given us the word of salvation to preach to others, that he has sent us into this wicked world to rescue others by declaring 
the victory of your son over Satan and sin, over death, turning aside your anger from us to give us eternal life. And not only us, but people of all nations. And so we do pray, Father, that you would not only give us such confidence, such trust in your word that we are saved, but also such trust and confidence in your word that we will declare it to others. And we ask it in Jesus' name.